welcome to episode 180 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Sunday 28th of January 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of bikebiz.com. It may be episode 180 and 11 years after we first started recording this show, but somehow I got my Skype input settings wrong for today and I sound a little tinny. My guests, however, sound great, so on we go. And we are recording today. Uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's a transatlantic show, certainly with... Uh, with some um, voices. One is transatlantic, but one is, is actually in this country. And before we recorded the show, or we started recording the show, she was getting ribbed uh, by the true transatlantic living person who uh, who was talking about her accent. So let's let's see if her accent is uh, more English than it really ought to be. That's Chris Garrison. Chris, uh, good day to you. Hello, Carlton. And I'd like to reassure everyone that I am still very firmly someone who is from the southern part of New Jersey. <laughs> oh, no, I see. I'm I'm getting lots of English coming through there. What do you think, Anna? Mm, uh, I wish I wish we had some sort of like buzzer we could hit when she starts turning and shifting. Well, if you know, a... this is anti-factual heckling, <laughs> that's what this is. Fake news. <laughs> uh, well, Chris, when you go back to the US for holidays or when, when you go across, do you then instantly slip back into pure American? Then when you come back here, and do both sides tell you off? No, uh, no one tells me off. I, I, I mean, that could largely be down to I, I try not to be very conversant with people that I don't know, uh, <laughs> lest I wind up talking to a Trump supporter. <laughs> see, see, I got to take I'm excited to be able to go back to England uh, this year for Bespoke. Uh, I'm Anna Schwinn, by the way. I'm the other person on the call. Yeah, I was, I was <laughs> going to bring you in a second. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, I've got a thick Wisconsin accent typically, you know, upper Midwest. And uh-huh. uh, anytime I hop on a phone call or I go to another country, it just vaporizes and you can't, you can't hear it. It may pop out here, but I go to England and I can't even fake my own accent. Uh, so that's interesting. I can't even fake the, the obnoxious, like British version of an LA accent that you see in BBC shows. <laughs> like that's a great accent. People hate that accent, especially when you try to talk to them on the tube. Um, which they also hate, and then you do it with an LA accent. It's just, hey, we, it's just a layer cake. We had Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. I think we we were kind of we've been there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, and got... that's certainly something that I don't get reminded about on a practically weekly basis. <laughs> yeah. Now here, I'm going to annoy you straight away by saying, uh, "You guys." Nice. Oh. Is that annoying you instantly? I'm not allowed to say that, am I? Well, it's just not very inclusive language there, Carlton. I know. Language matters. Well, I know. So we discussed that before the show. You, you can you can go ahead and use that language, but it says an awful lot about you mm-hmm. uh, and the people who use, you know, when, when you use a term like guys to address people, um, period, because you, you don't know what anybody is, you know, uh, and, and 
when you use that term, you're you're basically saying that you're you're not even considering, you know, you're you're you've got this very sort of focused view on your audience and on the people you're dealing with. But is it not? Um, and is it's it just not, better language to use. Okay, would would it not just be that it, it's it's almost gender exclusive at the moment? It can mean anything. Does that not mean it's a phrase that you, you can't offend anybody with that phrase? Oh, sure you can. Okay. I've got, I've got friends who, who have, uh, you know, trans, trans woman friends who hear terms like, you know, uh, I'll say, Hey man, you know, which I, I have, you know, adopted. I think it's pretty innocuous, you mm. know, it's a pretty harmful phrase, which is what I've been conditioned to, to understand, but you use that phrasing and it's, it's actually pretty offensive. And when I started thinking about it, I'm like, Hey, you know, when people use use phrases like that, uh, it, when I hear guys, you know, it's used in like bike shop environments or, or bike industry environments where it is primarily guys, and it's it's hard to not be sensitive about that. It's a it's a microaggression, and those kind of stack up. You know, it makes you kind of like tick. You you wrinkle your nose a little bit when you hear that if you're if you're a woman, depending on who you are. You know, I have so, a heightened sensitivity to it. So I've got a sensitivity to it because. It, to me, it's quite American, and yet it is actually being—it's used much, much more in this country, and it's almost—it it sounds American when people say it. So, it, it, for me, it's, oh. it has two levels of oddness. Chris, would you you agree there, or is it are you hearing it everywhere? Um, I, I think uh, it, it's certainly like many other things that have have made the the bridge between the U.S. and the U.K. It's starting to inject itself a bit more into UK vernacular. Mm. Um, and to further, if I could, to further Anna's point about it, it the challenge with saying something like, hey guys, to a, a mixed group of people is that if a group of just men walked into a store, you wouldn't say, hey gals. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't be considered appropriate. And in, in many ways, because of what we know about toxic masculinity, it could actually be looked at as an insult. So... If you're going to apply the same logic to addressing a group of women or a mixed group of people as guys, then you have to understand how come people might take offense to being referred to as guys when they very clearly aren't and the opposite doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So what's the phrase? Yeah. What's the phrase, Anna? Uh, um, you know, you could say friends, you can say people. Uh, you everyone. Know, there's hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. everyone. Yeah, good one. Yeah. Okay. Okay, everyone. Yeah. So what I was going to say. And also, uh, you know, mm. for, for the people for the people listening, if you're sitting here, you know, kind of like flustered, like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. PC oh, gone okay, cool. Good. Good for you. You know, good for you that you're you're not harmed by this language. And, you know, if you're a woman, you're not harmed by this language. Great. Good for you. You know, that's that's a privileged place to be. But, um, you know, just understand that we could make, you know, this, this, we could make our industry better. We could make uh, our sport better. We could make, you know, our retail environments better. If we sit there and we go, well, you know, it's a little thing. It doesn't mean anything to me, but it could mm -hmm. mean the world to somebody else. And it could completely shut somebody down and make me or my shop or my brand look just terrible and, and leave a bad taste to it and, and seem, you know, exclusive if I use this language. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a word you, for that. I feel like there's a word yeah. that oh, <laughs> begins with an E, uh, ends in a Y, has some other mm -hmm. letters in between. 
Hmm. Empathy. <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> yeah. Just be, if it doesn't mean anything to you, you know, if it's not, if it's not critical for your operation and it doesn't, it doesn't cost anything to lose it, you know, then why keep it around? If it's, if it's only causing harm, that's, it's a really good rule of thumb for, mm-hmm. for language, for, you know, uh, uh, imagery that you know we use in our shops for, for in our environments you know like if, if it if it isn't adding anything and it's only harming things and you can lose it it's unnecessary just kill it do away with it and you can use something different cool okay i'm with you there yeah. so you mentioned shops there anna and what i want to do i want to both ask both you and and, and chris about this Tell us what you're doing at the moment because you're both probably doing something a bit different from the last time you're on the show so <laughs> anna anna what are you doing at the moment uh, so right now, actually, um, I'm going to start kicking loose NABS coverage for, or NABS pre coverage coverage for bike rumor this week. So, so um, you know, every do, year do people we, don't know what that means. You should explain that it's a handmade bicycle. North, so yes, the North American handmade bicycle show, mm. which will be in uh, Connecticut this year. I'm unfortunately not attending this year. I'm taking, I'm taking a break. Uh, last year was, a you know, my, my bike won mm. nabs last year. Mm. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm a little burned out. I think I need to take a little break from the show. Um, I'll be going to bespoke instead, but bike rumor who I write for, um, does, you know, coverage of the show, but we also do little interviews before the show. So that mm-hmm. should be fun. Uh, and we have little questionnaires for builders. Uh, and then when I'm not doing that, you know, aside from some freelance things that I do, uh, one day a week, I, I work at the Northern Rose uh, bike shop in in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is uh, a nice a nice way to stay grounded. <laughs> okay. Did you also say before a minute ago that you were going to go to Bespoke too? Oh yeah, um, I'm going to Bespoke. To, uh, English English frame building right now hmm. is fascinating, and I'm so excited about it. Um, I went two years ago. Uh, I found it fascinating. I took trains all over, you know, London and a couple places uh, in in North England, and you know, got a feel for like the lay of the land in terms of where frame building was and how mm. how it was sort of evolving there. It's evolving very quickly, and it's a completely separate evolution from, you know, how things have worked out with. UBI and NABs in, in the US, they've got the Bicycle Academy and the Spoke there. And it's just a complete, it's like Bizarro World. It's completely backwards and it's great. And, um, you know, so two years ago I went, it was only about a year, a uh, year and a half since the Bicycle Institute had had established itself. So we're, we're two years past that. And some of those builders who are only, you know, a year or fifth, you know, 18 months into building are now a couple years on. Uh, I'm very interested to see how their attitudes have changed and how their product has changed and how the show has evolved because mm. a lot of American builders are coming. So that's going to be, that's going to be pretty neat. Um, Eric Noren from Peacock Groove is going, I'm pretty excited about that because, uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't feel appreciated in his time in the U.S., but um, he's he's got kind of a cult following in England. Like mm-hmm. I, I hopped in a car of a builder to go see um, uh, Rowan, who is a just fabulous builder, uh, drove me from Bespoke to Kent to go look at his shop after the show. And there was a kid in the, the car with me who was quoting Eric Noren 
from a podcast mm-hmm. at me. I'm like, I live down the street from this guy. He's he's like my best friend, and you're quoting him to me. Mm-hmm. They're like, he's amazing. He's the best. So it it should be a nice little little clash of worlds. I'm very excited for it. Obviously, well, when you were talking about uh, frame building stuff, there, I have actually got a frame building question, which I'll ask both of you in a minute and it wasn't in the show notes it's just popped into my head now because it's another story i'm kind of working on um but first of all let's let's find out exactly what chris is up to apart from being a rebel of course in your in your skype profile you say you're a rebel so apart from the rebel bit what are you doing chris well a woman's place is in the resistance as we know <laughs> Ooh, thank you princess leia um i feel like yeah. princess leia sometimes <laughs> So I uh, this this recording, um, the show, and the the occasional commentary that I make on various platforms is really about all I have to do with the bike industry these days. Uh, and what I'm actually doing, occupationally speaking, is that um, I work uh, for an organization called Amechi Performance Systems, and we solve intractable people problems within organizations. And that essentially involves going into uh, pretty big companies. Uh, we have a, a large, physically large list of clients who are all massive. And we evaluate their organizational culture. Um, and we basically work with them to figure out the ways that they could be improving the performance of the organization by fixing issues with workplace culture. And most people think that that it's ultimately about you know how well you sell a widget. And that's the thing that determines your workplace performance. But in reality, leadership they are the custodians of organizational culture. And if you have bad leaders, then you have bad workplace culture. And that means that people are not able to perform optimally when they go to work. So this, this, so, is, this is founded by John Amechi, the, the, the basketball player, then went on to become uh, a book, a very, very popular um, uh, book writer, yeah? Yeah, he's an organizational psychologist. He, he graduated from Penn State with a degree in psychology, went on to get a master's degree and a doctorate in psychology while he was playing. Um, because he never, he, he didn't start playing basketball until he was 17 and had no intention of, of being an athlete. He hated sports. He liked, he liked books and pie. Uh, so it, it just became the sort of thing that somebody said to him because he was a tall guy, stopped him on the street one day in Manchester where he's from and said, you would be great at basketball. And, and he liked the idea of somebody saying that he would be great at something. So his path deviated quite extensively from his his plan, which was to become a Jedi. Uh, and and w- when his school librarian explained to him that a Jedi is probably really more like a psychologist, then that's what he wanted to do with his life. And so the, the time that he was in the NBA was just a... It was a it was a tangent that he thought would be a good tool that would help him do what he really wanted to do with his life, which is to become a psychologist. And so um, that's what he did. He went to the NBA. He played professionally uh, between the U.S. and Europe for 13 years. And then when he retired, um, he started Amici Performance Systems in 2007. And it's been going since then um, as a way to uh, essentially take a lot of the skills that he learned over the course of his education and things that he picked up along the way from the institution of of sport and and how he applies that to organizations. And there is there is crossover for sure, uh, especially when it comes to the way teams interact with each other. A lot of people think that you know a team is just a group of people working on a common task, but in reality. Um, there are some psychological characteristics that differentiate a group of elite individuals from an optimal team. 
So we spend a lot of time going into companies and, and telling them things like that and, and sort of diagnosing what their cultural issues are and how that's impacting their performance. And what have you brought from the bike industry? Because you were, you were formerly an exec with, with Trek um, in the bike industry. So what have you brought from the bike industry that is useful in your current day job? Or uh, what do you think you could, ne- if you happen to, to be able to go into a, a, a bike industry company, a bike shop or a re- uh, um, on the supply side, what could you uh, teach them from your current day job? <sighs> big question, sorry. Question. Big, 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 big. Yeah, big. no, no, it's a, it's a provocative question. Um, it would certainly be an easier question to, to say, what have I taken um, that applies to my job now. And the, the, the main answer to that is, is definitely the, the way that the bike industry works, uh, from an institutional level. And I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's a male dominated industry and that creates problems and barriers in a lot of ways that people overlook because you're, they're you're kidding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh it, it's it's about homogeny and, and homog- the problem with homogeny is that it it stands very firmly in the way of diversity and inclusion and by diversity and, and inclusion i do not mean uh, protected classes, and we need to make sure that we have X percentage of women or X percentage of black people or X percentage of LGBT people. I'm talking about cognitive diversity that is the result of people coming into a situation from from vastly different backgrounds. That really doesn't exist in the bike industry at all. And I think mm. if I were to go back into it to answer the second part of your question and start to work with the industry as a whole, um, and and on a smaller level to work with with people locally within stores i think that the thing that i would start with is we need to we need to break this this uh this prison cell of homogeny that exists in the bike industry because everyone knows that the growth of the industry is not going to be coming from middle-aged men in lycra anymore Mm-hmm. Gasp! A vast wave of people <laughs> in the world that that no one is talking to about or or at, um, and that is perhaps the the biggest thing that that industries outside of the bike industry could feed back into the trade itself. Okay, well, thank you, because that was a big question. So, uh, sorry yeah. for, for for throwing that into okay. you there. Uh, right, I have got a question. It's a it's a, it's a bonus question in that I just just thought it up, but it's a, you know dockless bikes. These are these bikes Dockless that, bikes. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. so there's tons of America. A lot of them are Chinese. Uh, tons in the the UK now. Tons everywhere. Basically, Paris has got everywhere. It's got them, but they're all, for want of a better phrase for it, they're all mixedy. So they're all step through frames. So I'm wondering if the absolute uh, booming nature of in effect step through frames but potentially also mixty so the the you know the the dual um top tube thing there could that feed through into frame building in general could that just lead to a renaissance of getting rid of the top tube so anna do you, do you, do you see this changing anything I mean, the reason the reason why, um, as somebody who's worked with uh, and and adjacent to projects like that, dockless bikes are bikes that are designed to fit 
you know, uh, a wide range of sizes, um, for, you know, for casual riding around, uh, around town, which is what those things do. Mm. The, the mixed design is done partially out of necessity. You know, it's, it's something that you can step through in awkward pants, you know, regardless of, of flexibility. So if you're a less flexible or less able-bodied person, you can step through a bike much more easily than you can step over a bike. Um, so it's, it's, and if you're, if you're just riding around town, you know, it's, if you, if you get to an intersection, you can just pop off the bike and stand. And from, so, so they have to be mixedy. It's, it's, it's a necessity of the design. You know, you can't, you can't have a really short seat tube and not have, you know, a low top tube. So why, why um, have so a top tube ever again? If, if, if we know that they can be done without top tubes, why have top tubes? Uh, it's, it's a lot, you know, it's a, it's a much more structurally sound design with a top tube. You can build a lighter, uh, you know, a lighter bike with a top tube, uh, an appropriately sized sort of double diamond frame. Um, so that's nice. You know, it's, I, I worked mentoring a project out of, oh God, I'm going to screw this up. Uh, Iowa university, university of Iowa. Oh God. Um, one of those. I'm so sorry, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working on this this uh, collaborative bike share sort of program, and they were designing their their own bike share system, which is super cool. Mm. Um, and while they were going through their their designs, it's like, well, you can have this big, massive extrusion of a down tube, um, but you've got you know you've got this torsional situation with a bike, and you can either have this massive boom, which depending on what you're making it out of and how durable it has to be, it's, it's going to be actually pretty heavy. Um, or you could, you could bust out, you know, the tried and true, uh, you know, steel, steel tubes and can build a, a stronger, lighter bike. Well, a lighter bike, not necessarily stronger. That's, that's up to you. Um, but what I can say, like, so, so moving aside past like the, the, the sort of structural and, and, you know, the, the requirements of that kind of bike. Um, I think that having those around and available, um, to regular people who may have grown up, I think, I think we're past that era, you know, the, the sixties, seventies and kind of eighties where like a slope down to a sloped, a slope top tube meant, uh, a women's bike, mm. you know, we're past that. Um, there are people who do have that baggage sort of imprinted, but they're, they're getting older. Um, you know, we've got, we've got much younger people sort of running around who, who are less focused on cars than, than, you know, previous generations, but, you know, so who, who might not have that hang up of, of a step through bike being a women's bike. Mm. Um, so, so there's, there's that sort of element to, to consider, but I think generally, you know, having those bikes available and easily available and you can, you know, there's, there's, there's no baggage, you know, it's a bike. There's not a, a quote unquote women's model and a quote unquote men's model. It's mm. just a bike. I think that opens people's minds and probably older, older people's minds, um, about, you know, how practical that kind of design can be because, you know, when I was, when I was working, uh, in, in bike design, we made a point of not gendering those bikes because it would alienate older men, consumers, 
because they they had this hang up on step through bikes. We would say, you know, it's not it's not a women's bike. It's a step through bike. You know, we're going to we're going to make it black and tan and we're going to try and macho it up. So it's it's OK. See, <laughs> um, it's it's very practical. You can use it. You don't have the flexibility you used to. Um, and, uh, you know, so so the industry has kind of been pushing that. Um mm. You know, I was looking at Schwinn Cruisers a couple years ago, uh, probably ten years ago, uh, and they were they were doing something similar. You know, sort of machoed, machoed up uh, step through frames. Um, I don't know how successful those are, but you know, hopefully, hopefully that encourages people to look at more practical bikes that they can ride. You know, later into their lives, mm. uh, and and I could see that that would sort of you know, kind of shift the needle towards more practical bikes and maybe dropping, dropping that gendered baggage <laughs> mm. from decades ago. Chris, how about you? Do, is it, first of all, do you use these bikes? Do you use dockless bikes? I've never used dockless bikes. I've used plenty of, of docked bikes before. Mm. Which, which are also uh, roughly the, the same. They're all well, generally yeah, stepped through. That was, that was my second point was, mm. uh, was the idea that, you know, we already know that I think every bike share program that exists that involves docks is a step through frame. And, you know, at least in London, I, I, without it, without it being scientific at all, I can say that I see at least as many men on those bikes as I do women, possibly even more men on those bikes than I do women. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly there's, there, there's no problem with people using uh, docked bikes that have the, the step through design. Um, to your first, the first part of your question about the, the design element of it and whether or not this is, this is, um, an indication that there's an opportunity here and a a resurgence or a renaissance of the mixed design, you know, I, I would certainly defer to Anna's expertise on the engineering side of things, but I would point out also that, you know, we've seen over the years, the likes of the Trimbles and the slingshots and the Kirk magnesiums and, and all of these other sort of conceptual bikes that have come out and they've caused a little bit of a stir. Um, you know, the Lotus is another perfectly good, good example of that. Um, and, and while they, they, they certainly had flair and they attracted attention, you could also suggest that they are the one hit wonders of the bike industry because mm. they never, they never overtook the original double diamond design mm. for all of the reasons that Anna has already pointed out. So, and, and I also really like the point that Anna made about, um, the idea that more and more people are shunning the, the idea of a car. And I was w- listening to, I think it was radio four here in the UK. Um, it might've been something else that made a reference to the fact that, uh, the millennials, um, car ownership for millennials is no longer an aspiration. And yep. they are, I don't have a car. It's wonderful. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> And it, it isn't the status symbol that it, it once was. And because of that, they're much more open to the idea of using other forms of transportation. Mm-hmm. And I think that Anna's point about the idea of the shape of the frame not mattering is a really valid one because of all the things that we know about the, the, the mindset behind how people are choosing their transportation methods. Okay. Well, thank you. I mean, that, literally a bonus question, and it was just something that uh, I've been playing with because I've, I've done so many articles on Dockless, and then it's like, and these, these things don't look like ordinary bicycles, and, and will that feed through to what ordinary bicycles will look like in, say, three, four years' time? Anyway. Just a, a question mm. to you, if I could, Carlton, since mm. you've been looking into this. What is the viability of Dockless bikes? 
well, they're getting billions of dollars pumped into them. So from a purely uh, what's what's going on in the bike industry right now, that's really, really interesting. That's really, really profitable, certainly for... Uh, uh, but then you see uh, these stories these where... In, these stories in, in China where you've got these just heaping graveyards of, of dockless bikes that people have just, you know, trashed or thrown into rivers or just don't use. Yeah, that's largely um, Generation 1. So that's the Generation 1 bikes. And then the, the Chinese operators with this huge amounts of venture capital now behind them, including all of the Alibabas and the Tencents of this world, they're the big, they're the kind of the, the Uber of China. Uh, Duty Chung is also behind... Uh, these uh, these these schemes now so they're very, they're getting ma- uh, more mature as they because they're only three years old these things so when you see these uh, heaps of bicycles that's generally the first generation which were crappy uh, which were you know really, really cheap bicycles the ones that are second and third generation they've got gears they're, they're very very smart designed the ones that we kind of get in europe and in america in fact tend to be the second and third generation bikes <coughs> So the Chinese ones, they, mm. they only had these crappy ones. We've never really got the crappy ones. We've had the, the better ones. So in China, no, they, as in this country... Made it to, uh, the dock systems that we have in, in Minneapolis is, have been pretty popular. Uh, I know that dockless systems have kind of been like circling here, seeing how they could implement. And mm. this has been a a quote-unquote threat my next door neighbor actually works for the the docked system in town nice ride and i know that uh he's he's been like we, we don't know what's going to happen these dockless bikes are going to come to town we don't know what it's going to look like but this is this has been a threat for years and uh it just it doesn't it doesn't seem to be happening here at least yet i i would be interested to see how that would be implemented i um, think, I think... Our, our existing infra- infrastructure is so strong mm. Yeah, it's interesting which the, the places where they get put into. Do they actually lead to more infrastructure getting put in or not? It's, it's an interesting one. It, it's it's, it's a, such a brand new sector, literally three years old. And Doctor obviously is much, much older. And yes, the, the, the piles of, of bicycles that you see in China scares some people. But then those cities that want to have a bike share scheme but really can't afford it because these things are very, very expensive, as we know, they can, if they regulate them, get a, a, a dockless scheme in and then they become semi-docked as well because they've got to go into fixed areas. So they're not allowed to just be parked anywhere. So the, mm-hmm. the, the docked and the dockless are actually kind of almost merging into the same business model. Um, but one is it costs nothing to install because it's the third party coming in doing the installation and the other is hugely expensive. And in this age of austerity, then then that that's quite attractive to be free. Anyway, let's let's get on to the topics which actually we're meant to be talking about. So we're, we're half an hour into the show. We haven't even started <laughs> the topics we're supposed to be talking about. Uh, and so uh, one of the topics that uh, that in fact a, a listener uh, Don raised this one and he said, could we talk about this? And it, it's a very, very good uh, question to, well, it would have been to start with, but we have been talking about other things. But, and that is, uh, the Australian government has, has in effect, uh, dipped into its, its pockets and said uh, the female, I shouldn't say female, the women riders at the Tour Down Under, I, I caught that one, I caught it, uh, the, women, the women riders, sorry, the women riders at the, the Tour Down Under, 
they have uh, the, the, the race has, has, has been and gone, but they didn't get uh, parity in purse in purse prize. So the Australian government has said, look, we will actually uh, give you in effect, we'll top you up so you get the same as the men. So that's something that the Australian government has done, but it's clearly something that the government shouldn't be doing. That should just be standard, yes? It should be the same. Because in the article that, that I'll link to in the show notes, the, the, the quote was, you know, women uh, break their bones the same as men. Women are training the same as men. So why have the difference in, in prize purses? So, Anna... Is this something that this shouldn't be? We shouldn't be talking about this. In effect, this should just be. This should be happening. Yeah, I mean, uh, and we we talked about this extensively before the show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's it's really exciting to see what's happening with the tour down under. It wasn't that many years ago that the women's element of the race was was canceled, right? I'm mm. thinking four or five years ago, maybe. Um, and last year they did away with podium girls. Um, and they shift to, I think, juniors, uh, giving, giving awards or, or celebrities or just not, not podium girls. And they made, they made a statement on that. They're like, you know, this is, they were shooting for this, uh, equality and experience, uh, for the athletes. That was a massive statement. Uh, and then this year to have the government step in, uh, and basically say it's a moral imperative to, you know, have equal purses for men and women, that's that's massive uh at a time where you know um can can i bring up the other article sort of contrast (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. so um you know i i saw in the show notes that we were discussing this this piece in cycling tips uh about the australian government and another article that sort of popped back up this week is uh sort of an opinion piece i guess I hope that's how it's being treated internally at, at Vela News, um, where, you know, it's I'm trying to click on the, uh, the link here, but it's a piece called, you know, it's the outer line. Women cycling must own the road in the head. It's written by two men. Uh, and they basically come up with this list of suggestions for, you know, women athletes to push for all this change. And what's interesting about these these two pieces coming out at the same time is you've got the Australian government saying, you know, this is how it's going to be. We're going to make this decision um, because this is important to us as a country. It's important to the sport. Um, and then you kind of juxtapose that with, you know, these guys in fellow news um, basically saying, hey, you know, despite the fact that we have this existing infrastructure built around cycling, we already have this unstable sort of funding model, but we, we make it work for men, um, you know, because of your gender, uh, it's on you, despite the fact that, you know, you, you probably, you know, don't have a, a, a livable wage. You're probably working an extra job as an athlete. It's on you as an athlete because of your gender to do all of this work. And it's, it's like, you know, it's three or so items, um, about how to organize and, and push for this change. And it's, it's, it's interesting to have these two out at once. Uh, Chris, you, you, you can probably put things better than I can. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> I frustrating. I think you're doing a fine job. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there 
talk about a layer cake of a topic. <laughs> in in simplest terms, you can you can imagine the sort of backlash that comes every time we hear an announcement about something making something more equitable for usually for women mm-hmm. um, in this particular case, especially in the, in the case of sports. And this argument comes up pretty much every week in some form or another. And the thing that has to be remembered about this is that progress presents the biggest threat to those who benefit most from the status quo. Yes, 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 yes. That, that right there. (laughs) So for every every argument that comes up in in retaliation to an announcement like, like equal prize money, um, it, it, what you'll find is a number of people who, say, who will who will then suggest, well, they don't deserve the same prize money because they don't they don't race as far, uh, they don't deserve pay parity because they don't generate as much revenue. And what what any of those arguments? There's a litany of them. What any of those arguments fail to recognize is the institutionalized sexism that exists that is not down to women to fix. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. This is about the hierarchy of power and who is in control. And any time that you have a minority who is trying to create more equality for themselves, that can't happen in a vacuum. It cannot happen without the assistance of the majority. And in this case, the majority represents the people who hold the power. So you could easily argue that, you know, I can I can see somebody saying, well, to Anna's point about... Um, the, the responsibility being placed on women to, to affect change themselves. You could see how somebody could then turn around and argue that men had to carve their own way at some point in history, and that's how we got to where we are now with men's sports. And while, yes, we need to acknowledge that that is certainly the case in a lot of ways, imagine if we applied that same logic to education. Because Oof. men have... Men have been educated longer than women have. So imagine if we never took any lessons from the development of the education system that men put in place and applied that to women. So would we suggest that women are responsible for developing their own education system? Of course. And in fact, it would be absurd to do so. Mm -hmm. So why is it that we are willing to say to women that you have to carve your own way. You have to do a lot of this work yourself. You're the ones that have to create these arguments and come up with evidence and logic and reason for why you deserve to be treated with with not even equality at this point, but just something that is approaching equality. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so it's so especially frustrating because, you know, as somebody, I'm, I'm I am not I am not even close to approaching any sort of elite elite racing, um, status, let alone pro, let alone anything that way, but even at an absolute base level and paying attention and having friends who participate in the sport at that level and at all levels, the, the blocks to, to women, to non-binary, to people of color, especially women of color in the sport of cycling are mind boggling. They're just at every single possible level. And then, you know, to, to know athletes who have just clawed their way to the top, despite all of these, these, these obstacles and just knowing how much more passion and push they have to, they have to have to get to that level and then participate at that level. And then to be, you know, like sidebar, 
insulted by by you know the the racing community at that level by not getting equal pay or coverage mm-hmm. or treatment and then and then to to turn around and say hey on top of having to work an extra job because we're not going to pay you because we're not going to broadcast you because we're not going to give you all this stuff in addition to working so hard to get to this point so much harder than than men in the sport now you have to do all of this extra shit too and it's it's insulting you know and it's 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 frustrating from from a fan standpoint you know it's frustrating as somebody who's working on you know growing cycling from a grassroots level because people get in and then they see that that's what's happening at the top level of our sport why in hell would you take on a sport that disrespects it's top level athletes based off of gender in that way. Why, why would you take on that sport? How could you take that sport seriously? And it hurts all of us. And then, and then you have a ray of sunshine, like, like Australia being like, Nope, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to do this instead because it's right. Ah, but that, see, that they'll was, still get, they'll still get clapback for it. You know, they'll still get clapback for it from, oh, of course they will, but apparently the they don't give a shit because last year they, they, they did something that, that you know really hurt a lot of people who who oh oh no they're taking away my pretty ladies i have a god-given right to that pageantry they clearly didn't give give a damn about that and they they just upped it this year i I really hope they they push it for next year i'm excited to see what that 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 continent the the australian government stumped up there uh in the cyclocross world cup which uh, trek held that the company held in uh, in America this year, there was parity of prizes for men and women there too, which I'm assuming must have been a Trek decision. Uh, it was a, a UCI event, however. But if this is going to be carried forward across the whole of the sport, this has got to be something, it can't be up to individual uh, organisers, because that's going to be different in each uh, different race. It's got to be something that surely the UCI is just going to take a stand on and just go say, look, You've got to do parity here. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. UCI should be taking that stand. Uh, USAC could be doing that at a very base level. You know, they could they could require, if you're going to permit an event, you have to have a purse structure that that is equal. You, you have to have, um, you know, equity in experience and scheduling. You can't lump all of your women's categories into one one, you know, race slot and have it at eight o'clock in the morning or, you know, midday in Texas when it's 120 degrees, mm. which happens, you know, it's you, you could, as USAC say, all right, you want a permit, you have to do these things. You have to, you have to schedule appropriately. You have to have separate scoring. You have to have equal purses. Um, and equal purses, by the way, can also be no purses at all. Um, we, we do that in, in uh, the Minnesota Cycling Federation for several of our disciplines. You'd be amazed uh, how little of an effect that that's had for the men's field and how immense an effect it's had in the women's field because we can all walk around as a community and go, we've got equal purses across the board, even if that means no purses <laughs> at all for, say, track racing. Mm-hmm. But UCI could do that. Um, several local associations in the U.S. are doing that. And as I said, you know, Minnesota Cycling Federation a couple years ago, um, I may or may not have been part of this, basically said, put it into our um, 
our our organization sort of documentation that purses would be equal in this specific way. So, you know, cat one, two, three races, you'll have equal purses, men and women's races, and we'll have separate sort scored categories in this way. We did it locally. Um, but you know, that's not something that USAC is doing on a national level. And there is that opportunity. We could be doing this from a grassroots level and working our way up to, to show the UCI that this is doable, but we're just not. And, Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, that's frustrating as well. Like it's not just the UCI. It can happen everywhere. We can demonstrate it. Places are demonstrating it. Um, but it's just, it's not happening in a national or international level, uh, from at this point, uh, the the governance thing. I mean, I, I, um, I, I don't, I don't hide my contempt for the UCI where this is concerned. I hold the UCI entirely responsible for the glacial pace of change mm. for more equality in cycling. And, and of course, they don't control every element of it. They aren't the ASO, for example, or any other organizer. But a fish rots from the head. <laughs> yep. And they are the ones that set the standard by which all others are judged and, and, and what they should be following. And right now, the standard for equality is positively subterranean. Mm. Mm. And... They, they keep throwing out these 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 token these token efforts this tokenism by its very definition these these very piecemeal things where they will say we've done this thing for uh, to improve equality and inclusivity in cycling we've done this thing and it's this trickled out process where you might have one thing I mean Brian Cookson's presidency led off with his manifesto during which he specifically said that he had a plan for making cycling more equal. And he, he failed at every at every junction to try to actually move that forward. And and that is the problem because they're allowing this pace to be very, very slow. And and you can imagine that men's teams would never put up with this one step at a time approach. Oh yeah, no, of course not. Yeah, of course not. Men's teams <laughs> are just expected to to take out this this measured release of of equal of, of, th- of equality initiatives and just be happy about it. And oh, look how much, look how much things have improved. Look at how far we've come. We don't even have a, a minimum wage. Mm. But the, but the guys just got a raise. Yeah. And then of course people are like, yes, but if you instituted, this is my absolute favorite argument that holds <laughs> nowhere. If you instituted a women, uh, an, a minimum wage for women cycling, then you'd have teams that fold and that would be bad. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be bad. It would actually be freaking great that if teams folded, because essentially what those teams who aren't either willing or capable of paying their riders a living wage are doing is taking free labor. And you know what? There is a word for free labor that has a very deep and rich history in Western civilizations. And that word ain't professional. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. word is slavery. Mm -hmm. So you have a collection of athletes who are trying their damnedest to become good at something or think they are pretty good at something. And they're constantly being told, uh, you know what, you're not worthy of even a minimum wage yet. And, and since the UCI won't, won't establish one, we don't feel like we need to pay it. But we can go ahead and pay for these really nice embroidered shirts and these warm-up jackets that we can all wear. But we're not going to pay you so that you can actually afford to buy a new toothbrush. Mm. And and, yeah. and this argument that, that teams will fold that the a, a, a 
a condensation of the number of teams in women in women's cycling for the purpose of then growing the sport is the best possible avenue for making the standard of skill better. It sounds like you're. It sounds like you're talking about like trimming back a bush. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If you if you mow a lawn, then it will actually foster growth. So I think soccer, America, well, not American football, but soccer as in football uh, and cricket even seem to be quite a way ahead of cycling in this kind of area. So yes, there, are other, there are other Tennis. sports that we can look at. Tennis, yes. tennis Although, actually ten, is. Yeah, ten, tennis, <laughs> tennis, triathlon, golf. Um, yep. There's a couple of those are those are Paragon examples. Football, less so. Um, and, and this is this was the nature of the argument that I was having yesterday with someone um, who was talking soccer. about the, the soccer. Revenue. Ding, ding, yes. ding. Sorry, <laughs> soccer, just so you know, is is actually um, an English term. Oh, that's a whole other subject. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the conversation came up because Manchester City football team in the UK here um, has has decided that their social media channels will no longer be split between their mm-hmm. men, the men's team and the women's team, and how great this thing is. And 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 this started out by me saying, you know, I really want to herald this as the great thing that it is. But the a, problem is, sorry, Chris, just interrupted. Did you see the video that they put out where yeah. it was uh, men and women were completely equal? It was a fantastic video. It really was. It was great. It was great. And of course, you can imagine the comments that were in response to them posting this on Twitter, one of mm. which of course, was that women don't deserve equal pay because, um, because they don't generate enough revenue. And there was, you know, of course, there's always one person that's going to bring up the equal pay thing, and to which I had to point out that there is always one person that suggests that women don't deserve equal pay yet because of this, this false idea that, that it's based on revenue and that we're responsible and, the, and women's football is responsible for making that revenue opportunity exist which goes back to what we were talking about in that Vela News article. And, mm. and all of this is essentially putting, this, uh, putting the, the value of, of sport, women's sport in particular, on longevity. And again, that logic falls over when you think about the fact that you know, women haven't been able to vote as long as men. Does that mean that our vote isn't worth as much? Women haven't, haven't been able to perform open heart surgery for as long as men. Does that mean the surgeon who's making that cut is not qualified enough to do the job? And the other, the other fallacious part of this is that if you look at tennis, to go back to our example of tennis, mm. Roger Federer will draw a larger crowd than Novak Djokovic probably will. So... Does that mean that Federer should get paid based more on based simply on the fact that he draws a bigger crowd? Mm-hmm. No, you would never do that. And so when you put, when you pick that logic up and you apply it to women's sport, it becomes once again one one of those absurd things. You would never suggest that the individual person should be paid more because they draw a bigger pr- crowd. Serena Williams will draw a bigger crowd than any one of a number of the top male players on the men's circuit, and she probably still doesn't get paid as much as they do. And it's it's frustrating because they'll use these arguments based off of gender, but they would never use it in in cases of race or or you know anything along those lines. It it, it they only use it in terms of gender. Yeah, you know, and it's, and again, it's, this goes it, back to it's this skin goes back crawling. To the it's thing. skin crawling. Yes, and it goes back to the governance thing. It is absolutely about the governance of the sport. And if the UCI was really serious about creating a more equitable sport, if it mattered enough to them to create a more equitable sport, then they could make the changes to do so overnight. Mm-hmm. And I think 
I think the frustrating thing for me is that, you know, you're talking about power structures and that the people who are most, you know, who, who double down and, and just, you know, they, they, they just dig in, in these arguments, um, the people in power who do, you know, they're, they're very threatened by this idea of change. And there's this perception that if, you know, space is given, you know, to women that it's, it's just, you know, you're kind of taking from the same pie, right? You know, yeah, like the, the pie is only game. so big. Yeah. The, the pie is only so big and as you know, most of it's men right now. And if we give women anything, then, then they'll just take space away from men. And that's, that's absolutely false. You know, from, from my standpoint, as somebody who has been a lifelong fan of, of cycling, uh, professional cycling, road racing, track racing, you know, yeah, it was, it was a, a amazing and mind blowing to, to be able to watch the tour de France live, you know, when that started being a thing, that was so exciting to see that representation. You know, you just sit there on the edge of your seat for, for a month <laughs> or hitting refresh on your, your computer for a month at work. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of thing. But the thing is, is that there, there was absolutely no representation of women when I started seeing women in cycling actually shown, you know, uh, and, and broadcasted. I, I love the sport a thousand times more. And it's like, Oh my God, this is what I want to watch. Mm. And you know, this is, this is far more meaningful and interesting to me. Um, this is the sport I want to see. And I know a lot, you know, I'm looking, looking at my Facebook feed right now and seeing comments from my friend who are trying to watch the tour down, down under. And my friend Risa says that, you know, I wish that I could pay extra money to extra NBC gold so I could actually just watch the race I want to see, which is not the men's race. I'll just sleep through the second half of it anyway. Um, but it's, it's, there's, there's this whole new potential audience, you know, it's not like we're, we're demanding half of the pie. We just want to make the pie bigger. The pie can get bigger and everybody profits at that point, which is, you know, which is what I see. The industry would certainly start. profit. Yeah, the industry would profit dealers, dealers mm. who, who, you know, like make their shops more inclusive. And, and like when, when you start like digging in and going, all right, I don't, I'm not really risking anything. I'm not really hurting myself in making my language more inclusive or my space more inclusive. If I'm taking these little steps to make the pie bigger and open it up, you know, it's and make this space for people who aren't men, you know, we, we all get bigger. It's, we, we benefit from the enrichment of this diversity and, and everything gets better. And there are brands who have figured this out. It's great. But you've got this UCI entity at the top of everything who are just doubling down and digging in and not making change. And, and it's, it halts everything. You know, it's, it's this, it's this black, black spot in our sort of ecosystem as an industry and sport that they're just, they're just stale and static up there. And they, it's, it's toxic to everything when, when they're like that. It's all about the concept of a threat. You yep. know, like I said, it's, it, it, who is the, the people that are generating the pushback against, you know, progressive, more equal moves are the ones who, who have been able to gain the most from the way things have always been from that that concept of tradition and 
you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a person that, that, um, that agrees with the idea that, you know, taking, robbing Peter to pay Paul is the solution, taking money away from higher paid men in order to pay women a, a more fair share is, is the solution. But at least acknowledge that that pay was inflated in the first place because of the structure that was in place before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a kind of a and BBC the, angle. I don't know how much of this you know exactly, about Anna. Yeah, and, in, in and the UK not here? It's just the BBC. It's, it's, it's every organization. Well, I'll just explain that just in case Anna hasn't, hasn't filtered across to America. But in, we had a big discussion here with the male TV presenters, the men on the BBC News, get an awful lot more money than the women doing exactly the same job. And then about two, three weeks after this was a, a huge fuss, then... Wow, that, that must just be an English thing because that doesn't happen anywhere else. <laughs> well, the men, the, there's like six no. or seven of these, these big TV presenters um, who last week uh, came out and said, yes, they will take uh, a pay cut in effect. So what Chris was saying is we don't need to have that pay cut. It's just endemic of what the system is, is built around. So you don't mm-hmm. need to actually make that step if you make the, the system fair in the first place. Mm-hmm. Would that be and fair, what's Chris? Amazing about that is, what's amazing about that is the number of people who, who say, well, it's not fair to take their money away. So they, and like every, so many other elements to, to this type of argument, every, the, the people raise their arms and, and become enraged over what they perceive to be unfair treatment of people. And they get more angry about comments around inequality than they get about inequality existing in the first place. Oh my gosh. I, I, I know. I, Chris, Chris and I spend a lot of time in various platforms debating this. It's, it's like sparring, you know, sort of sharpening your weapons, right? Your argument. Um, so I, I, you know, I watch this all the time and I pay attention to it and it's, it's painful how, how, how similar the arguments are against at all points. But, but the, my favorite, my favorite argument is, you know, my favorite argument to combat that is it's, it's a grassroots effort because I, I spend a lot of time sort of working with people who are trying to convince promoters to have a better program, throw a better race. Um, and, and the thing, the thing that I always pass on is sort of like the line that I love the most is, well, if, if we're going to sit here and pay out based off of, you know, who's bringing in the most revenue from like, you know, a race fee standpoint at a grassroots level at an amateur race, you know, it's, it's your master's men are your master's men who are likely to be your largest field or close to it, or your cat four or five men, mm-hmm. um, those people should be paid the most if we're if we're just sitting back and going field by field and we're just saying okay so whoever whoever for you know we're, we'll just isolate um payouts based off of the revenue of you know that that field that race that event um then those particular events in a given race day would should have the biggest payouts if if we're using the logic that you know revenue um should should pay out but we draw this line at gender. We don't. We don't draw it by field. Um, the the it's yeah. I don't. I, I don't know. I'm, this, well, this is very, the exa- your your example also applies when you going back to your previous um, 
comments around soccer, Carlton. Mm. The, the women's national soccer team, which is currently ranked number one in the world, and this was part of the reason why I brought up uh, Manchester City, because the number one uh, women's player in the world is Carly Lloyd, and she plays for Manchester City's football team here. The, the women's national soccer team has a larger following than the men. They mm. sell out every game that they play in, in a matter of minutes. Uh, they bring in more revenue than the men's team does. And they had to sue their federation mm. for pay inequality. Mm. You are kidding. No. Mm. No. It was, it was big news in, in the world of sport that the, 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 the best women's football team, soccer team in the world had to sue U.S. soccer because they oh, they were US they were soccer. getting yes yeah, they were getting paid pennies on the dollar versus compared to the men. Mm. I thought you were talking about Manchester's women's team. No, no, the, the, um, no. Sorry, U.S. U.S. women's team. So Manchester yeah. City, just to bring it to a UK level, Manchester City has got this very good women's squad. Yet Manchester United, which is a, another global uh, super brand in, in in soccer terms, doesn't have a women's team at all. Well, that seems like an opportunity, doesn't it? It really does. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I feel like any time, any time I see like a program like that, um, or any time I see a bike race where you know I, I, I look at Tour of America's Dairyland, for example, which is a big race series in in stage stage race in uh, the Midwest in the U.S. Um, they they only market. Uh, the men's pros when they do marketing of their event and they there's this disparity like the purses are equal great but there's this disparity in scheduling and experience Mm. um, for the women athletes who participate and for me like I look at a program like that or I look at a program where there's just a massive purse disparity or there's no women's element at all competitive element at all and I see an incomplete program. I see half of a program. So when people are like, well, you know, Manchester United, they're, they're amazing, but there's, there's no women's squad. It's like, well, that's half a program. Mm. You know, that's incomplete. It's not just an opportunity. They're incomplete. They're not doing their job. Mm. I, I totally agree. Um, so yeah. let's, let's actually move on. Uh, otherwise, we'll be here for eight hours if we don't move on. Um, <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> yeah. And that is, so I, I, I did a story on, on Bite Biz last week, uh, which was about what this thing called the Revolve Wheel. So it's a German designer who has, well, I don't want to use this phrase incredibly, but you've got to use it in this, this respect, really. He's, he's reinvented the wheel in that it's a wheel that folds. And when it's a front wheel... I can kind of understand it, but a back wheel with the cassette and with the chain, it becomes slightly more uh, uh, problematical on getting it onto a bike. But let me just ask you, is this, is this a, a, a problem that needed this solution? Is this, we just don't need this product? Or do you see this amazing future for this, this wheel that, that folds on? Chris? Well, it's, it's innovation, isn't it? It's, I mean, w- without innovation, where would we be? And and had it not been for another certain German engineer, <coughs> whose mm-hmm. name shall not be mentioned because it's already part of the show. Hint, hint. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, w- where would we be with with the current state of of bikes and the bike industry? This is one of those things where we don't know yet what might come out of this guy's design. 
it might not be something that is entirely wheel related, but it, it could, because of his engineering and, and the design that he's put together, it could have some crossover effect into something else. I mean, and he's already applying this towards wheelchairs, mm-hmm. wheelchairs, for example. So imagine being able to make a wheelchair, which someone relies on to live. Uh, imagine that making something that is a bit easier to move around when a wheelchair user isn't actually sitting in the chair. Um, sure, it might not solve a specific problem that exists in the world today, but the, the, the point of innovation is not always to just solve problems that are in the here and now. It's to is to address things that we don't even know are problems yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it- and I mean, you know, I I travel I travel with bikes. Um, the wheel's kind of the the limiting factor, right? You know, you can't you can break down a frame. You can throw couplers on a frame all day long, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's the thing that you really, you know, that all bike boxes are designed around and coupler cases are designed around, um, are, are wheels, you know, you can't shrink down from a wheel. And, you know, I think, I think it's kind of exciting that there's this option. I don't see it, you know, it's from, from a robustness standpoint, I'm a little skeptical, um, as I would be of anything like that. But I'm, I mean, I ride coupler bikes all the time and there doesn't seem to be, you know, there, there, there's, they, they, they work fabulously, you know, day-to-day usage. Um, but yep. this is that they do. And my, my Prince bike is a coupler bike, uh, before, before I sort of handed it off for, you know, the last few months, it's, it's in a museum now humble brag <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm not sure the, uh, i'm not, and i'm not sure the cassette is is actually the limiting factor for a rear wheel either if you because you if you've got an internal hub well mm-hmm. not only that but when you look at the way that this wheel collapses um it 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 collapses laterally so it's a directional yeah it is directional so if you had a cassette on there it, w- it wouldn't change the direction that the wheel folds it would just mean that you had you you had one flat side and something that sits a little bit more proud on the other side, which would be the cassette. And and I think you, you you're still reducing the size of the wheel substantially. And I don't think that you'd have to take you you wouldn't have to take the cassette off. So a mono a mono stay then. So you wouldn't have to be taking it out of two stays. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Why not? I mean, it's it's we've got you know we've got all of this testing in place that we we use to determine whether or not bicycles or bicycle parts are safe extensive extensive standards um and it's like this can this can be tested to those standards this can be designed around those standards for for robustness you know if if it passes those tests you know as long as you don't mind you know the the extra weight or Mm. you know the tire feel i i think it's kind of cool i'd ride it you know this it could be fun here's the thing with the the tire feel there thing and is that this is a solid tire obviously you can't have a pneumatic tire well maybe you can though at at some point somebody can invent a, a completely collapsible one that even pneumatics can work on it however this one uh is segments and the segments are uh, solid tires, airless tires, and to go back to something from earlier in the show is dockless bikes. Most dockless bikes, bit different to docked, but dockless bikes are using airless solid tires. And I've tweeted this in that I'm now riding more and more dockless bikes. I am getting away from my antipathy, what I thought I had antipathy towards airless tires. In that this technology has progressed, 
they're getting to be not half bad. They're, they're still quite a harsh ride, but they're nowhere near as slippy or as terrible as they were a few years ago. So technology is clearly coming forward on, on, on airless I mean, tyres. Was it Michelin? About, I want to say, 13 years ago, they were developing that, that uh, non-pneumatic um, car tyre. Do you remember that? They, they had all these like absolutely just kick-ass videos of oddies and things sort of skidding around the desert and tarmacs, right? With these these sort of open open weave non-pneumatic tires. You know, there's people have been working on this at a performance level mm. um, for for a while, you know, at least at least auto, automotively. <laughs> But but also in bicycles, it's it's not unreasonable that it wouldn't progress, and that if this is this is a viable solution from not like a dockless standpoint, but you know in a scenario like this where you have this foldable foldable wheel, you know it, it, stuff can be developed. Like I I know that it's very easy to sort of like dismiss technology because it's new, but um, new and weird. But you know uh, mountain bikes, if they were dismissed right away because they they were awful and clunky and heavy we wouldn't have you know the fabulous machines that we have now mm. because there was a lot of weird technology from point a to point b that didn't make any sense it was absolutely awful to begin with um but you know we we forget that things can evolve and improve with weird product so it's like you know this this is it's a super cool concept i love it for wheelchair wheels i think that's that's something that can can work now yeah because that's a again, game changer Mm-hmm. Yeah, from a folding standpoint, you know, wheel wheelchairs, conventional wheelchairs are are you know they're they're limited because of that massive wheel size. And if you had something collapsible, then you could change the entire concept of of what that could be. Have yeah. something much more lighter and more mobile, something you could travel with more easily. That's super exciting. I, I like it when people get get super geeked out about stuff like this. It's like aisle one at Interbike. You know, it's, mm. it's the, it's the aisle everyone thinks that they need to go to because inevitably you're going to see some really quirky idea and, and you should do. And, and aisle one at Interbike is, is supposed to be about the quirky ideas, the things that aren't mainstream. And what I like Oof. about that is that I think that innovation is, is, is part of human nature and you don't have to be a super tech oriented uh, engineer to come up with innovative things. I mean, you know, people do small everyday innovation um, in their lives all the time. It, and it could be something as simple as, as, you know what, I think that there's a better way for me to, to get to work. You know, that's innovative to that person. So th- things like this need to continue to happen. People need to continue to think outside of the box like this, because as, as Hannah rightfully pointed out, thinking outside of, of what we thought of as a bicycle is how we got to mountain bikes. And then it's how we got to downhill bikes. It's how we got to people who, who are in wheelchairs being able to ride bikes on in trail centers. I mean, these things are really important and, and I applaud them and, you know, it's easy to write them off as something that is just too wild and too unacceptable and not mainstream enough. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's where the danger is. It, it's a cool product. It didn't lead to a huge amount of traction on the website. Like it wasn't like a hugely popular part of the website where people were saying, "Wow, this is amazing! This has got to be the future." It just people went, Meh. and <laughs> you know, was, I, I I find that odd. I thought that'd be a really popular. You know, it was it was okayish, but it wasn't like 
it didn't take the world by storm that particular story did you did you use the right lead-in image carlton <laughs> uh, the, the website actually has been redesigned thank you anna it, so I'm, we actually I'm looking, I'm looking at it it's beautiful yeah nice so it's, it's massive massive photographs at the at the beginning of the article so i think that helps uh, to, mm-hmm. to sell the story to sell the words and that particular guy uh has got a, a nice product and it's it's innovative and it's interesting and whether it's going to be picked up by anybody in this industry i don't know but it's clearly got a, a future somewhere down the line mm-hmm. so depends on how entrenched people are yeah well, well, i feel like we're dealing cycling is so so conservative from a racing standpoint from a product standpoint there you go the uci again mm-hmm. <laughs> The UCI hmm. defining defining what bicycles are and what bicycle parts are at a competitive level sort of stifles it for everyone else. Um, wow, does it all lead back to the UCI? <laughs> I mean, the UCI the UCI killed 650 wheels, mm-hmm. like 650C. Sorry, 650C because and, and recumbents they've they've killed lots of things. And and Y bikes and mm. you know super super bikes you know when they when they decided that you know your front and rear wheel had to be the same diameter that mm. that screwed over a lot of small riders an awful lot of small riders putting mm. weight minimums on bikes defining bikes as double diamonds where your handlebars can be an end. This is the 180th episode of this uh, podcast. I would say at least a hundred. Of those 180 episodes, we've been bad mouthing the UCI <laughs> at, at some point. It's 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 one of the the most frequent topics. I would say is, God damn those people at the UCI. They don't know anything about this sport and this industry. And and if they did, they wouldn't do what they're doing. So yeah, it's a, it's well, a, fr- I mean, a frequent I- thing. I often, I often, often say, um, I, I live in a city that has a massive, massive bike distribution company based in it. Um, I've, I've often said that we just need to pay people more and do away with bro discounts in the industry mm. entirely and force people who work for large companies to go to bike shops <laughs> and buy their parts with their, with their improved wages. Anna, you, um, you, 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 you are letting me segue straight into cycling tips here then. And oh, that, because that, that's going to be the, the cycling, the tips for today uh, are going to be retail related. So I, I said to, to people before the show started, I said, let's have some tips on, on excellence in retail, either inside or outside the bike industry and what bike shops could maybe take away from those ideas. So, Anna, as you were talking about that, and, and I, maybe you want to segue into what we were talking about uh, before we started the recording the show anyway, which was, you know, not going into bike shops. At, at, uh, at, uh, oh, sure. So, well, so well, okay. your, your, your tip for retail <sighs> excellence. Well, let me let me uh, let me finish this thought. I think well, this isn't just for you know this wouldn't just be for for bike shops, but I, I think I think that considering how reliant uh, a lot of the industry is on bike shops and you know our our bike shop infrastructure being healthy and happy, I think it would be wonderful and game changing if you know every employee of every massive component or bicycle brand or distribution entity had to regularly go into bike shops to buy parts 
to build bikes. Um, because, you know, first of all, if we increased wages, <laughs> and mm-hmm. drew, like drove revenue through the industry that way, mm-hmm. um, because right now people sort of justify to themselves or employers justify to employees. Well, you don't, you don't need to get paid a lot because, you know, your, your bike habit is heavily subsidized. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, so you know, if we drove people into bike shops and suddenly you were confronted by, you know, supply shortages or, you know, well, I, I can get this part so much cheaper through Wiggle than I can through this bike shop. And I can actually get it through this online entity where my bike shop can't even get it. And if they could get it, it would cost a hundred percent more. You know, I think, I think that that perspective would be wonderful because I know I, I, a lot of my friends in industry, because they have access to these, you know, distribution catalogs or to their internal sort of catalogs for whatever product they have, they never have to go into a bike shop mm-hmm. ever, you know, and their, their idea of how much bikes cost is so skewed from the rest of the co- uh, population. You know, it's, I, I don't know how much things cost, you know, unless I'm working in a shop or in a shop. Because I, I just, I don't have that kind of visibility. You know, when I worked industry side, I had, I had no idea. Um, you know, people would, oh, how much do these tires cost? And I'm like, Pff. you know, <laughs> oh, they, they that's, what does the that's price a, tag say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what does the price tag say? You know, you kind of, you kind of like Google it and try to find like what the actual number is, because from your perspective, that's, that's a $20 tire, but mm-hmm. for the rest of the world, it's a hundred dollar or $120 tire, you know? Um, because that, that it's so skewed from from the internal perspective to the external perspective. So how many? So like, just just how many people in the industry that you know of are in the industry because they get the discounts? Oh God, all of my friends probably. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's it was it was actually pretty funny. I have a I have a really good friend. Um, she's super bright. Uh, she's brilliant. She works in development. Um, you know, we, we talk all the time and, you know, one day she's like, Hey, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of going to this other brand, other outdoor industry brand. And I'm like, really? Like, why, why would you leave the bike industry? All the bike parts are cheap. And she's like, you know, it's funny. I can go to this brand over here and I can get three times my wages, uh, still in the bike outdoor industry. And then I could just buy bike parts Mm -hmm. from bike shops and it doesn't matter. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like this was, this was this mind blowing thing to me. Like, Oh, you, you can totally just not be in the bike industry and not be subsidized and then just go to bike shops and buy, buy bikes with, with your increased wages. Like, my God, I, I've never thought of it that way. But, you know, clearly it's really, it's really convenient to be able to list that as a perk <laughs> on, on job postings. Oh mm. yeah. You know, like the, the idea that, Every season, you know, there, there are companies that offer you like a free bike or, you know, $300 off a bike every so many years. Um, and then in addition to the 20% discount and the 20% discount from catalog, you know, the, the stack discounts and, and subsidized bikes and all that. And, and then, you know, there, there are people who exist in the industry who, who have super friends where they just get, you know, super gifts all the time because there's this hookup culture that's pretty aggressive at the top. Um, again, power structures run primarily by men hooking up other men. Um, but 
it's, it's, you know, you kind of look at that and you're like, wow, these people have never been to a bike shop. Yeah. I've taken many, many coworkers who just don't go to bike shops into bike shops and had to explain product or Mm. how things would appear on the shelf or the wall because they just don't know. They don't have to go. So why would you go? And I, I think that's, I think it would be better, better for the world. We would be a a better industry if, if that were the case, that's kind of a hell freezes over scenario. Okay. So your tip is industry types going to bike shops. Yeah. Go to bike shops, try buying all of your stuff for a season from a bike shop, like interact with it, pay attention, see how things actually work before you expound that everybody else in the world should go to bike shops and support local bike shops maybe you should understand what people are trying to support and and go to different bike shops. Gee whiz, you know, don't, don't go to your super cool local shop in town that hooks you up. Get the lay of the land, you know, expand your horizons. I kind of, I I do that in that I go to different bike shops and I feel guilty because when I post on social media, oh, I'm in certain bike shop, it's like, yeah, but the bike shop was in last week. I'll think, oh, I thought they were coming to to here forever. And and so I, I do kind of like spread my bike spend around but also feel guilty that i'm not going to just one shop you know you're meant to have just one shop that you go into and i i can't do that i've got to go into lots of shops well i mean but you you approach it from a very privileged position you know you you understand product you understand how product works you know uh you're you're an insider uh, you've got a publication, you're kind of operating from a position of power. You know, I think of my friends who are just getting into the sport, who are just completely terrified of bike shops, who get their bikes mm. secondhand or online because, you know, they go into a bike shop and, you know, somebody, somebody to tie it back to the beginning of the show, somebody says something, you know, gendered or, you know, offends them or shuts them down. And they just basically get up and turn around and walk back out and go, this is terrible. Um, and I'm, I'm not into this. I'm not going, I'm not going back to another bike shop ever, ever again. Uh, you know, (laughs) it's, it's, you have to, you have to sort of understand that those are the people that we need to bring in. And Mm. I I hate the word coddle because people are like, Oh, I'm not going to coddle them. It's like, that's called marketing to we market to, to white privileged, able-bodied I'm getting hate mail already. Mm -hmm. Um, men, men of a certain, uh, uh, financial situation all the time. We coddle them. We coddle the crap out of them. Um, but only when we, we refer to anyone but that particular demographic do we actually call it coddling. It's marketing to them. It's coddling to everyone else. And we have to start sort of shifting shift the way we, we think about it. And for people in privileged situations, like go out and explore and, and, and understand what things can be like and what to avoid and start opening your eyes. Okay, that's a long tip. Okay. Carlton, if you um, if you went into a Sainsbury's instead of a Tesco, mm. would you feel guilty because you went into Sainsbury's instead of Tesco? I go into Waitrose. <laughs> I'm a Waitrose Privilege. kind of guy. Um, no, no, you're right in that it's it's very much a, just a bike shop thing. I mean, it's partly because of what I do for a living. Um, partly because I know the people who I go into follow me on social media, so probably do recognize that I'm going into, in effect, their opposition. And I'm assuming people in Waitrose and Sainsbury's and Tesco's are not following me on social media and couldn't care where I, I shop. So it's a small world, and, and that's why I, I care about it. 
True, but if you have a preference of one bike shop over another, then you have that preference for a reason. And somebody who would flag you up for that saying, why haven't you come in to our store, perhaps needs to look within. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, also, also, like we've got we've got all this like heartache around around bike shops. Like, oh, you know, there 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 are certain shops that we just absolutely have to support because oh, we have to do our part. And it's like, man, there's some bike shops that are just terrible places, and they don't have great product or great service. And I don't particularly like the people personally who work there. And you know, I've <laughs> I'm yeah, thinking so of one shop in particular. They don't deserve I, to stay open in, in, in those I, I shouldn't have to personally sit there and it's not a charity, you know, like I don't it's feel service, like I yeah. should. It's a service. Uh, I'm a customer. I'm, I'm not like obliged to spend money at a place that I, I had a bike shop guy throw a box of handlebar tape at my head once <laughs> at a shop. And, and then I got shit for not going back. And it's like, no, no, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's not a charity. It's a business, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. And Chris, before I come to you and ask for your tip, I'll, I'll just give you mine. This is, this is, I, I think this is mainly an American thing in that an awful lot more American shops, they kind of make their mechanics stars and, and not just, you know, like personality, but they have the mechanics visible. So they'll often be right in the center of the shop and you can see who's working on your bike. I would say in the UK, a few shops do that, but mainly it's the, the bike shop is taken away from you and you never see it until it comes wheel back out to you. You don't tend to see the mechanic. The bike shops don't make stars of their mechanics. So I would just say a few more stars as, as mechanics would be my, my, my tip. And there are some fantastic shops that do do this, but maybe that's why I'm thinking, maybe that's why they're fantastic shops, because they, they're actually making their, their raison d'etre, really, at the moment, which is servicing bikes, absolutely visible. And it's like those restaurants where you see the chefs out front. You almost have yep. more respect, and you can see what they're doing, even if you're not looking at them all the time, you can see that it's a, it's a clean restaurant, that kind of thing. It's that kind of ethos. It's, it's being proud of, of what's actually putting the money into your till at the moment, which is servicing of bikes. Well, it also showcases the investment that you make in the tools required to do that job well. Which is not cheap. You know, you can yeah. park, you know, a huge wall of park tools. That's multi, multi thousands of pounds. Yeah. And, and it gets more expensive. <laughs> yeah. The shop that I worked in made, and, and this was in the U.S., absolutely made a point of that. The, the, the workshop was... Was, a, was the feature of the store. All of the tools were on display. Mm -hmm. And the owner of the store was very clear about why he did this. And that was because the people that are allowed to cross the red line into the workshop portion are trained to be there. And they're trained to use the thousands of dollars worth of tools that the mm -hmm. owner has invested in in order to make them experts in their field. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. should be somewhat, you know, the idea is it should be somewhat intimidating to see that and think, oh, all I need to do is buy... Um, a, a book from somewhere and that will tell me everything there is to know about how to fix a bike. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's not true. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so your, your tip, I've given you extra time there to, to come up, but you had a tip right from the beginning. Didn't I, you? I so do, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So go for it. Right to go. Mm. So my tip is about the psychology of shopping and mm. 
<laughs> what we know about the, you know, the, the uh, your independent by retailers, and we should probably shouldn't limit this to independent retailers. The, the brick and mortar stores are are under threat and have been for quite some time by internet only retailers, mm. and a lot of that has to do with the the bad customer experience that they're creating in a store. But some of it also has to do with the fact that, again, as I mentioned earlier, bike stores themselves are not doing enough to target new customers, specifically women customers, and basically anybody who isn't a a white guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And almost every bike store has window frontage. And when I was still in the industry, one of the last things that I was doing was doing a lot of consulting with retailers about how to attract more women into their stores. And I would say, look, what, what retailers outside of the bike industry know is how women shop. So we would use the example of the Gap as being a best-in-class example of retail merchandising. Because one of the things that the Gap knows is that if they put window displays that showcase the products that they want to sell in a way that people would actually wear them, then that is a way that women will actually shop for those products. So if they see an outfit in the window that they like, and they think that that outfit is going to look good on them, then they're going to go into the store and they're going to seek out that outfit and they're going to buy it. And they're not just going to do that for themselves. They're going to do that for, for the other people in their lives as well. So mm-hmm. if they have you know, a male mannequin that has an outfit and a woman thinks that her friend or brother or partner would look good in that outfit, she's just as likely to go in and buy that outfit for the male friend that she's got in her life. And the stores themselves will then put those products front and center so that people don't have to go very far to find those products that are on display in the window. Mm. And here's how this relates back to the bike trade. Just by nature of the fact that the store says bike on the sign, men know that that store has something in there that they want. That is, <laughs> that is not an automatic for women in any way, shape, or form. Some mm. of the other research that has come out about the psychology of shopping says that women will start to form their impression of the store and the experience that they're about to have at the curb it's not even when they set foot in front of the store. That's the second. Well, and and the website. The and website. Yeah, the website, yeah. And now, of course, now. Oh, the virtual curb. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, if what it, and if what you have on your website is this, this idea that they're going to have this amazing experience when they get there and there's going to be loads of stuff for them. And then when they actually get to the store, their lived experience is something very different. Then that incongruence is going to keep women out of your store. And so my tip is. Take advantage of your window space and ad- use it as a, as a billboard to advertise the fact that you are a store that wants to have women customers. And these are some of the things that you think women need and want and should have in order to enhance their cycling experience. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And extend that, extend that to social media. If you mm-hmm. have an Instagram account, well, first of all, if you don't have an Instagram account, make an Instagram account. But you know, when you, when you develop your social media presence, when you represent people who aren't men, who aren't white men, don't do it in a tokenizing way. Don't do it in a sexualizing way. You know, so, um, we were discussing in a different platform, um, there, there's, you know, uh, a cycling specific restaurant slash bike shop, you know, in a part of the world that may be LA. Um, but, their their social media is you go through it and it's 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 white men white men white men white men having drinks white men on bikes um some very occasionally you know you'll have a a man of color on a bike um but men 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 
when they do portray women through their social media, it's always from a, a male gaze standpoint. So you don't see women on bikes. You don't see women in Lycra. You don't see women sort of like hanging out and eating. You see a close up of a woman's mouth around a straw for a featured drink, or you see a picture, you know, of a woman model from above who's enjoying a, a drink. But it's always like it's always very sort of specific and off and sometimes sexualized. And it's a very different portrayal. And it's not marketing to women. It's not portrayal of women for the benefit of, you know, marketing to women, it is women to market more for, for men. And that's, that's problematic, you know, do what you would do with a storefront, Mm. yeah, portray your women's product market to women. And, you know, I would say that social media is probably the curb at this point, um, in your analogy, uh, Chris, a a bike shop that does this, a bike shop in the UK that does this very well, and I'm, I'm, I'm 300 miles away from here, so it's not a local bike shop, but the way they handle their social media and their... Look, and the, yeah, exactly. No hands? Totally, yes, totally. wonderful. I love them. They're fabulous, and they do a great job, and the woman who runs their social media is fabulous. Alex. And, and yes, Alex, yeah. oh, she's, mm. she's fabulous, and, and it's like... It's like it's always fun and it's quirky and there's diversity. There's diversity of, of people and, and marketing and product. It's fabulous. Well, the very fact that um, I didn't actually have to mention it and Anna knew who I was talking about, that must say yep. bloody hell they're doing something right. And it's no secret that part of the reason why they do something right is because their social media channels are run by a woman. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And from, from my perspective, you know, I go to London on a trip um, to to meet these women in London to ride with and and hang with and party with, and my uh, my sister team is is in uh, London. Velocipasi, they're wonderful. See them at Lee Valley, um, but they're great. They're the best. Um, but the first night I get to town, I am taken to look mum no hands because mm. it's just the place you go to and the it's established. Really, mm. that's great. I love it. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm, I'm saying yeah. mm there because, yes, I mentioned it, even though Anna guessed who it was, but it's also like, it, it's, yeah, they are the one that you're going to mention because they are doing it so well. And it's like, but why can't, why can't there be five shops that Anna would go, oh, do you mean this one, this one, this one? Why is Look Mum standing out? Don't they out? have two locations? Don't they no, have two locations? They, <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is, like, you know, I would challenge anyone to find a dude who has been turned off by the idea of going to look mom no hands because of the way Alex operates their social media channel. And and you won't because the thing about making things more inclusive is that inclusivity benefits everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That shop is a cultural event that everyone loves to go to. You know, it might not be the most aggressively technical, you know, shop in, in, in the city, but you know, it's got, it offers so much more. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's great for so many people. They, they have events there. They watch races there. You can eat there. You can, you can buy bike, you can browse bike parts while you have your coffee. And you can watch the mechanic as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful. And it's like, man, you know, like I think about the shops in Minneapolis that are, that are like similar sort of cultural events. It's very similar. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, sorry. I'm, I, I am getting over the food. I, I am kind of petering out here. 
<laughs> okay, well, let's let's go for a wrap there. So that is a big vote of uh, applause there to look no hands for what they're doing. So any of the bike shops could absolutely look at what they're doing and saying, why, why aren't we doing that? Uh, just having a social media manager. Well, that's 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 a big step for a start. Uh, so I would like now to get from from Chris and Anna where people can get you on that virtual curb that is the internet. So Anna, where can people find you? Um, aside from the series that I'm putting out for BikeRumor.com uh, starting this week, I could be found at Schwinn at all costs on Instagram. Uh, and in it to Schwinn it on Twitter. Perfect. And Chris, <laughs> Chris, where can we see you on Twitter, on Facebook, on wherever? Where do we see you? Well, since my last appearance on this show, I, um, I've had to change my Twitter handle to make it slightly more professional <laughs> and in keeping with my, with my current highfalutin job. Mm. So my Twitter handle is now at the C Garrison. However, my Instagram feed is still my trusty old punk ass CG. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. So, so, so all your, you've just changed the name, so all your old tweets are still there, but just, or oh, is this yeah. a totally new yeah. account? Old tweets, everyone who followed me uh, oh, okay. under punk ass CG before, it was a pretty easy transition. Okay. Uh, so I hopefully, hopefully it's just, you know, uh, my, um, <laughs> I haven't lost anybody because of the name change. I probably lose more people because of some of the things that I say. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you to both of you for joining me on uh, that 180th episode of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks' time. In fact, we're probably going to be back before that because I'm, I'm interviewing some other people um, in about a week's time. Uh, which hopefully will make it into a spokesman special. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, a lot of the stuff that we have been talking about, like the Velo News thing, like the, the Tour Down Under thing, which was suggested by Don, thank you very much. Do go on the website and suggest topics for us to talk about. We, we love that kind of stuff. Uh, and the website is the-spokesman.com, and that's where the show notes uh, uh, go online. And... Uh, I've just got to say thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing and thank you for uh, being on the show today, Anna and Chris. And uh, in the meantime, before the next show, get out there and ride. Ride.